0: You can see up on the board, tonight is question and answer part two. If you weren't here last week, I answered the first eight questions. I didn't have any real order to them. I pretty much just listed them as I received them for the most part. Uh, The first one that we looked at last week was God's will. We went to Acts chapter 13 and saw God's will for Paul for the work of ministry. We looked at Gnosticism. Gnosticism is basically man trying to obtain right standing and Before God, according to his own intellect. Uh, The question, will the unborn be in heaven? Those babies who have died a stillbirth, an abortion, or whatever it might be, and I believe that they will. Young children in the rapture. Will young children be raptured? And again, I believe there is an age of accountability. We don't know what it is. So we share the gospel with our kids and be found faithful in that. But again, I believe that child obviously will be judged fairly. The theology of predestination didn't come to any conclusions on that one. That was one that has been brought up and asked for the all of the ages. Um, somebody asked, is it okay to have eyes closed during prayer for dinner? And we gave them permission to go, I'm sorry, eyes open during prayer for dinner. We gave them permission to have their eyes open. Uh, structure in prayer, somebody asked a question about that. And I believe structure in prayer is a good thing. Not structured Prayer, but structure in prayer and then somebody asked about judas apparently they got in a discussion with somebody and the person said without judas there could be no christianity uh something about judas giving their life for the lord jesus christ and we kind of debunked that christianity is built upon the lord jesus christ judas didn't give of his life he took his own life he's the son of perdition or the son of waste so entering into the ninth question Ninth question, very pertinent question. Now, all of these questions, some of them, you know, like that one might be silly, but somebody actually approached that person about the Judas thing. So all these questions are important. Um, This one's very pertinent. Uh, I've kind of answered it already in service. I even alluded to it this morning. But our ninth question, why is the Islamic religion so important to us? Is it the biggest threat to Christianity? Christianity. I say it's pertinent not only because of what's going on in the world, but even right now in Australia, there's a hostage situation. Thirteen people have been taking hostage of a group of people that have posted an Islamic flag in a storefront. So that's going on even as we speak. It's mourning in that side of the world. Again, there is only one threat to Christianity, and it's not Islam. The threat to Christianity is people who call themselves Christians and do not act like it, or do not share the word. That's the biggest threat. Taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Everything else was definitely defeated upon the cross, but there is the reality of spiritual warfare. We know that we will prevail against this, and if God is for us, Romans chapter ten verse thirty-one, who can be against us? Um, Islam is is is. is it's going to be prominent in the last days, very possibly. And even the Antichrist could be Muslim. Um, but he's still not going to prevail against God. There's nothing we can do to stop that when that time comes. That's according to God's calendar. But the biggest threat that Islam is isn't so much to Christianity, but it's to the United States and our freedom. And whenever we see Israel disobedient to the Lord, what does the Lord do? The Lord brings the sword from the east and so i think that's what's happening with this country this country's got a heart that is so far from god and moving farther and i think god has brought a sword against our nation even with the wars in iraq and afghanistan look how it has what it has done to our our uh, economy and also the ones who have given their lives for it it's divided the nation whichever side you're on is unimportant at this point but nonetheless and we saw what what occurred at 911 and so Yeah, it is definitely a threat to our nation, but once again, we serve the living God. We serve the living God and they do not. Allah is not the God of the Bible. Allah is not Yahweh. And so my trust and my hope is in God. And as Jesus said, that the gates of hell shall not prevail. And so I find my hope and my trust in that. I should not be foolish and just ignore uh, Islam as it exists and as it moves forward. But I also understand that the way to defeat the Muslim is through the preaching of the gospel that he might be saved. And again, we seem to be seeing this as there's reports that there's more Muslims that are coming to Jesus Christ now than ever before. Isaiah 54 verse 17 says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and the righteousness is from me, says the Lord. And so again, there is a real threat from Islam. We need to stand against it. We need to be prepared. I'm not downplaying that. But as far as being a threat to Christianity, in actuality, there is no threats against Christianity. Jesus said, if his people would be quiet, even the rocks would cry out. Somebody asked, number 10, what is the day of the Lord? We see that term throughout all a lot of the Old Testament and into the, Testament, into, the Testament, into the New Testament. When it comes to eschatology, eschatology is the study of end times. There are four days of. Four days of. The first is the day of man. More a theological term developed by the theologian than something that is found in the Scriptures, although the concept is found in the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Now, that's true, but we do have the government, and we do have, all of us, a choice to be made. And God gives us the freedom to make that choice, And the freedoms to govern ourselves. We can govern ourselves in the Lord and we can see our society blessed or we can forsake the Lord and see society cursed. But nonetheless, this is pretty much the day of man. God is still sovereign. Make no mistake about that. But God allows certain things in society. If you want to leave this place and you want to go sin as you walk out those doors, God's probably not going to stop you. He gives that freedom of choice. We live in the day of man. But then there's going to come that one day, one day it's going to occur in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It's the shortest of all days. It's the day of Jesus Christ. In first Corinthians chapter one, verse seven and eight, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This would be the rapture. It's the rapture of the church as the church is removed from this world as the times of tribulation intensify so we have the day of man this would be inclusive of the church age then there is going to be the rapture of the church that shortest of days that the church is gone and then starts the day of the lord the day of the lord starts at the time of the rapture goes through the time of tribulation that's seven years it's inclusive of the second coming of christ it's inclusive the millennial age and the judgment that follows the great white throne judgment After that is that which is, again, it's a theological term. It is the day of God. That would be the time when there is a new heaven and a new earth. Instead of having me up here answer questions, you can just go to God. Isn't that an amazing thing? And actually, you'll probably be a lot more smarter than you are now anyway, or at least a lot more enlightened or informed. And so you'll have knowledge as you've never dreamed of before. And so... We've got the day of man, when man governs himself. The day of the Lord, the moment of the twinkling of an eye, we have the church raptured. The day of the Lord, again, that time right after the rapture, because again, when the rapture occurs, there's not going to be one saved person on earth. And again, I really believe that even a matter of moments right after, people are going to realize it's true. And there will be people coming to faith all through a time of tribulation. People are coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, all the way through the second coming of Christ, the millennial Rule, reign, and the great white throne judgment, and then, as I said, the day of God when there is a new heaven and a new earth. 11th, the Sabbath. Should we Christians keep it or not? If yes, why? If no, why? Really, I mean, it's a good question because sooner or later in your Christian life, you'll be asked this, especially in our area as we have a lot of seven day Adventists in this area. And they are the ones who say that you should be worshiping on Saturday. They believe that they are keeping the Sabbath. But when you get down to it, and I will answer the question, but it is a flawed question. It is a question that is, well, just has a built-in lack of understanding of the totality of Scriptures. Not just in the contemplation of the Sabbath, but the law as a whole. Because the question ought not to be, should we keep the Sabbath? But the question really means, should we be keeping the law? Because if you have the law, well, it's like if you're driving home tonight. Pastor Mike, should I keep the stopping of stop signs? Well, so you leave here and you come to a light and you stop for that. You keep the speed limit. You're doing well. Say the police officer's behind you and he's not going to do anything because you're doing well on everything. And then you run through a stop sign. You're going to get a ticket. And why would we think that, well, if we're going to keep the law, why do we think just the keeping of one little thing is going to make a difference in everything else? Because the law is put there to show that you're a sinner. So if you fail in some other area, but you kept the Sabbath, God's not going to bring you into heaven just because you have kept the Sabbath. The Apostle Paul was very clear on this subject, the issue, if you will, was circumcision, because the Jews were trying to implement circumcision upon the Gentile churches as people got saved in those churches. Circumcision, Sabbath, it's all elements of the law. And so Paul said in Galatians chapter five, verses one through six, he said, stand therefore in the liberty, which Christ has made us free faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And Paul saying, stand fast in that. Don't worry about going back, not so much that they were going back, but at least coming into that Jewish worship system. When you had all of the rules and the regulations and the laws and the sacrifices and all these things, therefore, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised or say if you start keeping the Sabbath, Christ will not profit you anything because you'll be thinking that your righteousness is based upon what you're able to do. You guys don't go to church on Saturday. You guys go to church on Sunday. I go to church on the Sabbath and I'm going to start thinking more of myself than I should, even though you may have stronger faith than I have. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised or anybody who keeps the Sabbath that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And so we all make the decision, which way do you want to go? Do you want to go according to grace? Or do you want to go according to the law? You can't intermingle the two according to your own desires. You can't take just bits and pieces, and that's what people do, that try to hang this yoke of bondage upon people. They take their pet piece of the law and try to attach it. If you decide to keep the Sabbath, you also need to keep... Now, okay, let's just say that you've decided that, well, I do need to keep the Sabbath. Then you need to go all in on the Sabbath thing. You will also need to keep the seventh year Sabbath. After seven years, you need to take a year off. You'll need to talk to your boss about that and tell him that it's according to my religion that after seven years I need to take a year off and see what he says about that. And, And then there's the Jubilee after, it, it's, it was questioned, it was it the 49th or the 50th year? There's theologians that go both ways. Nowhere in the Bibles it recorded that Israel even kept the Sabbath, but the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, once again, you need to take another year off, but also, all debts are set free. You can talk to your mortgage company about that. If you have any slaves, or if maybe if you're a slave, then you get to go free, or you need to set them free as well. But again, you can't just say, Saturday you got to follow through on the whole Sabbath. And then again, you've made that com- uh, commitment, so now you're committed to keeping the whole Sabbath. And so you have to take that seventh year off. You can't just take the seventh day off or the 49th year. You've got to be all in, and you got to keep it perfectly. But also, you need to understand that the Sabbath was not intended to be a day of worship. So it makes no sense to go to church on a Saturday. Matter of fact, the Jewish worship system was so intense, the idea is to take a day off. And so the Jew was not commanded to worship on the Sabbath. We've kind of made that connection with it, and it's not true. So if you're going to keep the Sabbath, you ought not to be at church. You ought to be at home, and you ought to be taking it easy. The Jewish sacrificial system was a continuous, everyday thing And the Lord gave them one day of the week off, if you will. And you can ask, what about the fourth commandment? Over in Exodus chapter 22, I'll read it. It's verses 8 through 11, not 22, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Well, you got to remember a lot of the Jewish law and you've got to use common sense and scripture with scripture here. A lot of it was pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And this specifically is because the Bible, Paul writing in Colossians, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, but I can't just look at Paul. I got to look at the Holy Spirit speaking to us on this subject. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Notice it's Sabbaths, plural. Plural. The seventh day, the seventh year, or the seventh time, seventh of ninth, Or in Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So where is your rest? Your rest is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ ministers to me every day. It's that peace that surpasses understanding during hard times and difficult days. And so, just because I don't, work on a particular day or go to church on a particular day does not make me closer to God than anybody else. As we know, it's always a matter of the heart. Um, My wife and I, when I was working a job apart from the church, we determined that we were going to make, this is just a vow that we made before the Lord, that we were going to keep Sunday holy, that we were going to use it for worshiping God, and not working and I had my own business and sometimes I really need to work Sunday but we made this vow so we did not work Um, one day I just convinced myself that I had to work Uh, we were doing a job down at Fleur Corporation I did go to church in the morning I left church and told her I don't know if I'll be back for service tonight I have to go to this job I went down to the job and I just prayed about it and just told the Lord. I I told the Lord because the Lord needed to hear from me. I told him I needed to do it rather than asking him what I needed to do. I got down there and I couldn't get in the building. So I was down there for about an hour trying to get in, calling people, couldn't get in, so I had to come home. And so the Lord helped me keep my vow. But again, I'm not more holy because I did that. That's just a decision that my wife and I came to. If you want to worship the Lord on Saturday, that's fine. There's churches that you can worship the Lord on Saturday. But the problem is, once again, and you can't get past this, and I've seen it so many times, there starts to get a little bit of spiritual, an element of spiritual arrogance. When we start doing something and we start taking elements of the law and start keeping it, we lose that element of grace and we we start to get that element of look at me and look what I am able to do. Number 12, how do we find out what events are currently taking place that coincide with the important events or knowledge or prophecy in the Bible? Well, it's pretty clear, good question, but pretty clear. Be a student of God's Word. Just be a student of God's Word and glean from God's Word and we'll see everything that's going on and everything that's transpiring against the backdrop of God's Word especially when it comes to prophecy, you need to know and you need to understand regardless of what's going on, God's in control. Because you can so easily lose perspective and start looking at you know, just all of the things that are going on prophecy is important don't get me wrong well let me let me go let me keep going here romans chapter 8 verse 28 and we know this is something that paul's hammering that point this we know so pay attention that all things work together for the good to those who love god and to those who are called according to his purpose so again prophecy there's just the knowledge that god is working all of these things out so the things that happen they might be hard things but they're good things because it's god who is in control working his plan now this same person, this was, should really be 12B, There's same, the next question, which is part of that first, is there a special channel on TV? No, God does not have a TV channel. He's got the Bible. But it, that's a, actually a, a really good question. You know, Where do we find out about all of this stuff? Well, first of all, you have to be careful about all of the propaganda and various movies, tapes, and teachings that are called prophetic. A lot of them aren't prophetic. A lot of them exist just to kind of keep you going on and buying more. I remember there was a well-known teacher, well-known Calvary Chapel teacher, that when we had Y2K, he was selling tapes and he was selling... Y2K kits, survival kits, and stuff like that, probably made, a lot of people made a lot of money off of Y2K. I remember generators were very hard to find during that time. People were stockpiling water because we know if Y2K, you know, if Bill Gates had that bug in the Windows system that was going to affect all the computers, that was going to be bigger than God. I mean, Pastor Chuck kept saying, I've depended upon God before then, and I'll depend upon God after that. And I can remember we had service day that was New Year's Eve and I remember just as we were starting service from what I remember it was midnight somewhere in the world it was midnight in Europe and Europe made it through and I think at the end of our service it was midnight New York and New York made it through and didn't we all make it through did Y2K affect anybody here negatively other than the threat or the scare that A lot of, unfortunately, even some good Bible teachers got caught up in. I remember John Michaels, he's the pastor in um, Calvary Chapel, Spring Valley. He used to write code. He was one of the, I wouldn't want to say the first, but when PCs came upon the scene, he was one of the first people that were writing code. And he says, if I need to, in a year's time, I could write all the code that really needs to exist to make all of this go away. He kept telling it's just not that big of a problem. Well, the problem with him, he was contrary to a lot of these people, and we so like to listen to the sensational. So be careful about that. Be careful about the sensational, because God's not about the sensational. God's just about the everyday reading of God's Word, to live a life that honors God, to have faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to seek to share your faith. The majority of the prophetic explanations turn out to be not true, even by some good-hearted people. I've heard a lot of things that have been described as prophecy. Any moment uh, the Arabs are going to come marching into Israel, there's tanks on the border of Israel, then you never hear anything more about it. Now at some point, we know these things are going to happen and we need to be aware, of it. that is definitely biblical prophecy. But again, we just have to be careful about this. I have to make sure that it lines up with the Word of God. And so... This kind of takes us back to the first part of the question. How do we find out what events are currently taking place that coincide with important events or knowledge of prophecy in the Bible? To be aware of the Bible and to see that these things are happening and a lot of the things that are happening, even right now, it seems very much to be a precursor. What have we been told to do? We've been told to watch. See what's going on? Check it with the word. See what's going on? Check it with the word of God. Ezekiel chapter 38, see what's going on? Check it with the word. And we see a lot of these things. They could really happen tomorrow. But again, even if they can't, even if they do, my trust is in God. Do you see anywhere where it says to buy guns, stockpile food, or build bunkers in here? No, it doesn't. And we kind of have that mindset when it comes to, you know, we need to stop these things. We can't stop these things. We need to pray and we need to evangelize. We need to be on fire for the Lord and pushing hard. But a lot of these things, a lot of these things just turn out to not be true. The bottom line to prophecy is spoken of in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the second for us, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, or the day of the Lord, and we know that that includes the rapture of the church, but it also includes the people who are going to be going through the tribulation. And if we're busy stockpiling and building bunkers and we're not sharing the word, again, we have more than likely, very possibly, I'm not making any projections or or, uh, predictions because then you'd start saying, well, you're just one of those guys too. But nonetheless, we very well could be ministering to people who will be going through the tribulation after the rapture of the church. And so we need to be busy doing the Lord's work. I know people who have become immersed in some of the sky is falling ministries and have become scared to death. And instead of moving forward and moving out, they've pulled within themselves and again, not fulfilling the Word of God. Second Timothy 1, seven: For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. So use that sound mind definitely to watch, to see the prophecies are there because prophecy is essential in the Christian faith, but keep it all in proper perspective. I mean, again, are we crying wolf all the time or are we crying out, come to Jesus? Come to Jesus Christ. Again, prophecy is important. Keep it in biblical perspective. 14, do we just have to know the Bible well enough to know when something is truly newsworthy. Yes. Next one. <laughs> there, there's just not, no need to expand upon that. Yeah, if you know the Bible, you know that God's in control. You know the things that are going on and you know the things that are going on in the Middle East. Well, those are prophesied. And it's going to go on and it's going to continue to go on. The Middle East, you know, we, we have presidents, we elect presidents and we want peace in the Middle East. There's never going to be peace in the Middle East. There's never. There will be at a time, but it's going to be a false peace that, is, uh, that has been fostered by the Antichrist. But other than that, there's going to be no real lasting peace in the Middle East. We see it in the Scripture, and I have a peace about that. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. What is it going to do? It's going to guard your hearts and your minds. And so if you get all caught up with what's going on in the world and the evilness and all that, what's that going to do? It's going to rob your mind. Your mind's going to be turning topsy-turvy all the time. But if I'm in prayer, as I'm seeking God out in the midst of all of these things, He's going to guard my heart and He's going to guard my mind. I'm going to have a peace even though, yes, things are going upside down. And, And as I've said before, My my, uh, grandson, Henry, the youngest of my grandchildren, but I think this of all my grandchildren, what are they going to be experiencing? After I'm gone, after I'm dead, after I'm sitting in the presence of Jesus Christ, if the Lord tarries, if the rapture doesn't happen, what are they going to be going through? What are they going to be experiencing? Because, you know, for those of you who are around my age, I just turned 57. Remember how things were? Well, you don't remember how things were in the 50s, although some of you here do, but in the 60s, and how things were then, and how things were in the 70s and the 80s. And this is a slippery slope. Things morally aren't getting better. Things physically aren't getting better. Things are getting worse. What's it going to be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now? What's it going to be like then when my grandkids are my age again, if the Lord tarries? And so we can kind of go go real far with all of these things, but I just need to give it over to the Lord and understand again that he's in control. And and the father's hand, if you will, is upon the button. He knows when the proper hour and the proper time is coming. So as I see things getting evil, it does grieve my heart. Make no mistake about it, but I also said, this says, it's gonna be like that. This is exactly how things are supposed to be. And once again, if Jesus Christ comes back tonight I think he would be in all biblical rights to do so according to his word 15 When Jesus walked the earth how old was the earth at that time how old is the earth now were the dinosaurs before Jesus I don't know how old you people think I am but I wasn't around no Good question because what are we always hearing? We're always hearing of millions and millions and millions of years. And what do they always connect with the millions and millions and millions of years? Dinosaurs. They always have the dinosaur issue to deal with. So again, this is a very good question. Uh, were dinosaurs before Jesus? Yes, I do not personally do not believe that there was dinosaurs around during Jesus Christ's time. Um, working backwards, how old was the earth at that time? How old is the earth now? If you do the math in the scriptures, it seems like there was 2,000 years from Adam to the time of Moses. Maybe, probably a little bit more, maybe about 2,400, somewhere in that ballpark. And then from that time, there was another 2,000, years, whatever it might be, to Jesus Christ. So it looks like from Adam to Jesus Christ, it was about 4,000 years. Now, we know from Jesus Christ to our day now as 2,000 years. So I personally believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. And you can look at science and you can refute that with science or attempt to carbon dating and all of that stuff. But I truly believe that there was a dynamic change at the flood. I believe that the Grand Canyon was formed by the flood. You have the earth and it says... The waters came down, but what does it also say? It also sprung up. Now, as you have these great waters springing up from the earth, what's going to happen? It's going to leave a void in the earth. What happens when there's a void in the earth, and then you have all that water on top? It's going to collapse. It's going to collapse, and it's going to wash away. Because I've been to the Grand Canyon, and you stand up there, and they say, that river cut out this canyon. And you look down there, and there's a little river down there. And of course you're going to need billions of years for that thing to cut anything. And so I really believe what we're seeing is the flood. They've got, you know, with the trees and the petrified trees and and again, the carbon dating. But again, atmospheric conditions were different back then. There was a shield of moisture, of water barrier all around the earth that filtered the sun. So again, all of these things were completely different. (coughs) Excuse me. And then came Mount St. Helens if you remember what happened Mount St. Helens. You have Mount St. Helens and you've got this volcanic activity and you've got this lava and these gases that are just building and building and building and building. And they knew this and they said it's going to blow. Some people wouldn't leave and they were there. There was one guy, uh, well, one of the magazines, I don't remember if it was National Geographic or Life, ended up getting his camera, but he had his car parked. He looked like he was 20 miles away or something, and he photographed the blowing of Mount St. Helens. They said it was the same power of so many nuclear bombs. I don't remember how many, but you saw the destruction. Some of it, there was pine trees, and it was like somebody just mowed them all over. So you see the force of that. There was snow on top of the mountain that instantly melted, so there was this huge flash flood. And there was this guy in volcanic ash as it spread, really wrapped, I believe, around the world, and even came back the other side. But there was this guy who was taking these time-lapse pictures of it, and you saw the explosion, and then you saw this ash all come in, and the guy ended up dying. But you saw how far away and how powerful that was. This was truly a cataclysmic event. And they said they saw some amazing things. Strata, or layers of earth that they believed that took millions and millions of years to form, it formed instantly. And they had a lot of things that they never thought could happen that fast, happened that fast. And they saw some things too. They saw different strata, again, layers of earth, but they would have trees that were almost vertical that were going, well, they looked at this particular strata. Well, we thought it took millions of years, but then there's a tree going through it and and that, that, that mimics a lot of other areas that they have strata of earth, but they got trees going horizontal through millions of years. Well, if a tree gets stuck in the earth, and you start building strata up over that over millions and millions of years. Is that tree really going to last millions and millions of years? And so it's definitely a question that that speaks to our ages. Well, what about dinosaurs? Does the Bible speak of dinosaurs? Well, the best that I can do is Job chapter forty verses fifteen through twenty four that speaks of a behemoth, chapter forty, verse fifteen. Now, you tell me what this describes. Does it describe anything that we know? Look look now at the behemoth which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See how his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar, like a cedar tree. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near uh, his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade and the willows uh, by the brooks surround him. Indeed, the rivers may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth. Though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. And so there's this big creature, tail like a cedar, that nobody can stand against. Sounds kind of like what we would call a brontosaurus. Is it? It doesn't really say. But then we have the Leviathan in Job chapter 41, verse 14. Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all the way around? Could be an alligator, could be a crocodile. His rows of scales, well, it can't be one of them. They don't have scales. Well, they do. I guess they do have scales. Are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another and stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. There's quite a few civilizations that have this picture or some kind of writings or fable or tale of fire-breathing dragons. Now, is it possible? There are animals, mostly insects, that have this element to them that they're able, chemically, to develop great heat through the mixing of two chemicals. A flamethrower, that's what a flamethrower does that you see in the Army movies. It mixes two chemicals together and causes that, that flame that you see. There's a beetle, and I can't give you the, uh, the specifics. What he said. It's just hard to hear up there the way the, the bombardier beetle. And it mixes two chemicals and it causes a, a heat to, it, to be able to emit heat. And so, okay, let's just say he's right, okay, there are dinosaurs. What happened to all the dinosaurs? They didn't make the flood. Well, wasn't two of all animals brought on the ark? Yeah. But do you think he went out and got the biggest dinosaur he can find? I would present to you, he got the littlest dinosaur that he could find. He may have called it a dinosaur back then, but I think we would call it a lizard today. And so you look at the lizards, you look at the dinosaurs, and there's a lot of similarities to them. Now, A lizard's very interesting in that a lizard throughout the course of his life never stops growing. Now, what happens if you take that lizard and you put it in optimal growing conditions? If he never stops growing, now, men live to be 900 years old. What happens if you got a lizard that never stops growing, that lived to be 900 years old? You would have a big lizard or a dinosaur. But then the flood came. The flood wiped them all out. Adam took a couple of them on the ark, but he got some little ones. Can't imagine he would take a big one, and now they're not living nearly as long. They die earlier. They don't grow that big. They definitely exist. We'd be a fool to ignore that they existed. They did exist. They did exist. Did they exist during the times of Christ? I do not believe they did. Doesn't really make sense according to the theory I just presented. I wasn't there, so I can't tell you if this is fact. But to me, that makes the greatest sense. That makes the best sense. And so, I don't have a problem with the existence of dinosaurs. Again, because they're fossils, we can't ignore it. But I think it works in harmony. This description works in harmony with the scriptures. Next question, question number 16. Will, will you better explain the 144,000? My answer to that is no, I won't. Well, not so much that I won't, but I can't better explain it because Revelation chapter 7, it just is very plain. And we need to take the plain reading of the word. Good question, because a lot of people question this. The Jehovah Witnesses have built whole theologies off of this. But God wanted us to see, I mean, he made this very clear. Just let me read the scripture. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. So the idea here is they're holding back judgment. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. So they're holding back judgment. So this angel is able to seal some people. We know it's 144,000. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So we know that this 144,000 is going to be servants of God. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000, all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And so who are the 144,000? They represent all the tribes of Israel. And so... We, we can't, you know, there's symbolism in, in, in uh, Revelation. There's a lot of symbolism in, in Revelation, a lot of pictures there. But it always tells you when there's a picture. When it's the plain teaching of the Word of God, it's also very clear. Now, it's as if God's thinking, okay, they're going to do some weird stuff with this, so I better spell it out for them. And then the subsequent verses, verses 5 through 8 says, the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And he goes through the whole list. So that there's just no way that you're going to get this wrong. There's no way that you can pervert these scriptures, although they have tried, that it's very plain. That's why I say, answer the question, can I better explain to 144,000? No. Not that I won't, but that I can't, but also, taking another step further, don't really need to, because it's very plain right there. These are the times of tribulation. Right now, we have the church age. And we see that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. The majority of the church today are Gentiles, although there have been Jews saved. Somebody once told me that Christians are not Jews, even believing Jews are not Christians. But who were the first people that were called Christians? They were Jews. They're Apostle Paul. And so they are Christians without a doubt. But Paul saw that he was going to shake the, dust off his feet and he was going to go to the gentiles and so predominantly the church age is god with his attention towards the gentiles although once again we still see jews saved and actually we'll get into this question in just a little bit there's going to come the time of tribulation god's focus uh, uh, not revelation romans chapter 11 god's focus is going to change from the gentiles to the jews there's going to be revival in Israel. Israel is a very secular state today. For the most part, they don't have a desire for the Lord or the things of the Lord. And you may have heard it referred to as Billy Graham, uh, uh, by Billy Graham, or Greg Glory. These are 144,000 evangelists. These are who God is going to use to evangelize Israel. Faith will still come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What's going to happen in Israel, they're going to go through a time of tribulation as they have never seen, and they've gone through some pretty strong times of tribulation. But these are those who God is going to seal. That means that they're going to be protected through this <coughs> Excuse me, through this time, matter of fact. <coughs> we're not going to go there, but in chapter 14, we're going to see that they're with the Lord when He returns on Mount Zion. He's going to protect them these 144,000 through the time of tribulation. There will be those who are martyred, but not of the 144,000. So we must stay dogmatic on this. The 144,000 are Jewish evangelists from every tribe, 12,000 from all the 12 tribes of Israel at that time. How do we know who the 12 tribes of Israel are or who's part of what tribe of Israel? We don't need to. This is an act of God. This is something that God is going to do. God says He's going to do it. God's going to do it. Question number 17. In the Revelation study, it refers to the prayers of the saints in the bowls before God. They are also included in the first seal judgment. I always thought that these prayers were the prayers of all the martyrs from all time before and during the tribulation, calling for justice. But I have been hearing that these are all the prayers for all things from all saints for all time. Can you clarify this for me? Well, they're referring to Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was giving much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. In the study of Exodus, the tabernacle was to be built according to the specific instructions given to Moses, and it was to mimic God's heavenly dwelling place because it was to be his dwelling place here on earth. Part of it was to be this incense altar. Now, the prayers. Well, here... You know, incense is a picture of the prayers of the saints. It's a, a offering or a, an aroma to the Lord, very pleasing, well-pleasing op- aroma to the Lord. It says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he had given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers, and it says here, of all the saints, upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Well, I showed it on Thursday night. You have the Holy of Holies. Right outside the door of the Holy of Holies, you have the incense altar. And so here it says, for all the saints. And this is a picture of the prayers of all the saints. All the saints, all the prayers of the Old Testament saints who prayed for Messiah to come. The prayers for the New Testament saints that were praying for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 22 20, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so, this is the prayers of saints. And what's happening here, Jesus, in essence, is preparing to answer all of those prayers His second coming, the accumulation of all things. Now, where does the confusion come? Because you can look at this and you can say, Well, why would they ask that? This is very clear. It says, All of the saints. Well, if you go back to chapter 6, verse 9, there's where the confusion kind of comes from. It says in verse 9, Then he opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who had been killed was completed. Now, in verse 9, he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls. Now, again, it says the altar. And over here in chapter 8, it says the altar. Here, there's the martyrs. Now, these are the martyrs that were martyred during the time of tribulation. And so the question is, is it the same altar? Or is it a different altar? Well, the only thing I can say is, I believe. I believe it is a different altar. Why do I believe it's a different altar? Is because of the typology. Now again, over in chapter 8, we have the picture of the prayers of the saints, and that fits perfect with many areas of Scripture. That Well, we had um, Zacharias, we had John the Baptist's father. It says, so while he was, he was a priest in the temple, while he was serving as priest before God, read this the other night, In order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so we have that joining together of the incense and the prayers. But what altar would this be then? Well, it says, he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar. Well, what we've seen in our study in Leviticus of the sacrifice under or at the foot of the altar it's where the blood of the sacrifice is to be. And the blood of the sacrifice, it represents death. And we have that brazen altar. Now, this was the altar where the sacrifice was burned. Now, that altar today, what would that be? That would be the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the picture that I have, I've got a picture of these martyrs before the cross of Christ. How long, Lord? How long until you avenge? I don't think it's the, the incense altar because, again, that's the prayers of all the saints. So there is a distinction there. There's a distinction between all the saints, incense altar, and the martyrs, the cross, because that's where their hope is. That's what they're dependent upon. They're dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the plan of the Lord Jesus Christ based upon the crucifixion of Christ. Because you can take that back to Revelation chapter 5. And there's John and who's worthy to take the scroll and nobody's worthy to take the scroll. But then there's the Lamb of God who has prevailed and He alone is worthy to take the scroll. And that's when heaven breaks forth in that great choir. Why? Because of the cross and what Christ has achieved upon the cross. So when He opened the fifth seal, verse 9 again of chapter 6, I saw under the altar the, altar, the, altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Well, that bull had been slain for the word of God and his blood was sprinkled, or the lamb or the goat was sprinkled at the foot of the altar. And now we have those who are martyred for their faith at the foot of the altar wondering how long, how much longer is it going to take until, Lord, all of these things are tied up. And again, it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ To bring all of these things to pass. I'll answer one more and then we'll go ahead and close. Number 18 When people die who have not accepted Christ, are they in hell or do they uh, now or do they go later? Well, I'll present to you just two things here first of all i do not believe i believe there is a hell right now but it is uninhabited at this point in luke chapter 16 with this real story the lord gives us a picture of hades the dwelling place of the dead luke 16 verses 19 through 31 i'll just kind of read through it there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was, uh, was buried. And being in the torments of Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, we know at this point and at our point today that we know that nobody has been sent to hell yet, what we would call hell. So there has to be a place that people die apart from Christ are kept. That would be in this bad section of Hades. And again, I'll finish reading that and get a little bit better picture if you're unaware. The great white throne judgment that I will read in a little bit. The great white throne judgment hasn't occurred yet. And the great white throne judgment, after that judgment is rendered, and again, this is after the millennial reign, then we start to see hell inhabited except for two instances. And again, I'll explain all that in a minute. But verse 23, back in Luke chapter 16, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So seeing Abraham, so he's seeing the Old Testament saints. And he sees this man. So from Abraham all the way to this man who died in faith in Jesus Christ. Now jesus hasn't died on the cross yet if jesus hasn't died on the cross man cannot get into heaven now what about those who died in faith they have to be somewhere and so we have hades don't think of hades just as a bad place it'd be like these two rows here we have calvary chapel ontario we have all the people of calvary chapel ontario over here who are going to be judged and end up in hell of course in calvary chapel ontario there's nobody here and then we have a gulf in between and then we have all the good side of Hades, if you will. Those people who are, yeah, good job, Scott, you made it. We have all, he's raising his hands. We have all those people who have died in faith in Jesus Christ, waiting for the price to be paid upon the cross. And therein, in what's called Abraham's bosom. is also referred to as paradise. And he cried out, this man who's in the bad part of Hades, he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and son Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those who pass uh, from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father. And so we're not going to go any further. So there's this holding tank. Now, when Jesus died upon the cross, it said he descended. He went and took the right side of the sanctuary here and he took them with him to heaven because he has died upon the cross. I say took him with him, he allowed them to go into heaven. Jesus was going to reappear here on earth. But nonetheless, now because Jesus died upon the cross, the price has been paid. They've died in faith in what he was going to do. They're able to go. But those people who were inhabiting the other side of Hades, they, they're never going to go to heaven. And so they're being held at that point with a great white throne judgment. So we go back to Revelation and we see the first inhabitants of hell we see that at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 19, verse 20, it says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark, and the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. That's always a reference to hell, not the bad side of Hades. And so we have our first inhabitants of hell. Satan is going to be bound. And so he's going to be bound for a thousand years in the millennial time. So Satan is not even in hell or I imagine his demons at this time, but there's only the false prophet and the Antichrist there. And so Jesus comes back entering into the thousand year millennial rule. Satan is released at the end of that time from his prison. He leads a rebellion. It is put down. And then there is the great white throne judgment. Verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So it's at this point that they are sent sent to that place. Uh, This is all humanity. I probably should have started reading at verse 10. It says in verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. So the beast and the false prophet are in there. They're in there all by themselves for a thousand years. The devil leads a rebellion. God puts it down. Then the devil is thrown into what we call hell. And then there's the great white throne And the great white throne, after those judgments are rendered, then all humanity who has died apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they are cast into that place. What this tells me, a couple things this tells me. First, that there is a hell. And secondly, that man will spend, man apart from Christ, will spend eternity there. Notice that the false prophet and the Antichrist were there for a thousand years. See, when the devil was cast in a thousand years later, they still existed. And they existed in hell because there is a doctrine of annihilation. It's the belief that if you die apart from Jesus Christ, that you will just simply cease to exist. That is not a biblical doctrine. And we see the truth of that in the false prophet and in the Antichrist. False prophet and Antichrist are human beings who are more than likely possessed by the devil, but nonetheless, they're still human beings and they still exist even a thousand years later. They're joined with the devil. Why? Because hell was prepared for the devil and his demons. It wasn't God's desire that any man should ever be there, but man has rebelled against God and has refused God's way out, and then man populates that place. And so it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so as we look at whatever questions it is that we have, we always look to the cross of Christ. cross of Christ cross of Christ that keeps us from that place, the cross of Christ that brings us into His marvelous light, into His being, which we will live and rule and reign with Him during that millennial age, but live with Him also for all of eternity. Father, once again, we just thank You for Your Word. And Father, those answers are there if we search for them with all of our heart. And I pray, Father, that these questions, and I appreciate all of these questions, that, Father, I pray that I made the answers clear, clear as I could. And pray, Father, that Lord, if there's any other ones that, Lord, we would have those brought to light and be able to address those as well. But, Father, again, we just thank you, Lord, for this great and wonderful work that you have done. Father, it's bigger than all of us how far beyond our understanding it is, but, Lord, how close in our belief that it is as well. So, Father, we just thank you and praise you for who you are and all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand?